The scripture reading is taken from John chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. As well as 53 through 59. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do the works of God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. In the run-up to Christmas, we were looking at what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to change the direction of your life and become obedient to Christ as the great shepherd, as the leader of the Christian church. Now, in the run-up to Easter, we're looking about at who Jesus is. The world argues about it. The church has argued about it over the centuries. And each of us must individually come to terms with Jesus. Who do we think he is? What is he? Why did he come? What was his life and death all about? And the best place to to look at that is to look at what Jesus said about himself, his claims. You'll often hear in books, in the media, in in movies, that he was some kind of great teacher. He was a charismatic leader. And he was. But he was also something much more. And the things he said about himself were outrageous, were radical. And you cannot come to terms with who he is unless you've considered what he did say about himself. So let's have a look at this. This is uh, John's Gospel. This is the the sixth chapter. And um, it's a long chapter. And it's really where Jesus begins to stir things up in the ministry. He feeds 5,000. The people have started to come out of their villages and meet him in the wilderness because they're hungry for a word from God. So he's away from the centers of power, from Jerusalem. He's out in the wilderness, and yet the people are coming to find him. He's just fed 5,000 of them, and he's just walked across the water in the Sea of Galilee. 
And the people have chased along the shore after him, trying to figure out who he is. And that's when we come to this passage. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So the people have left their professions, left their homes, their villages, left their fields, and they have come to find Jesus in the wilderness. You know, this was back in a time of subsistence farming. Resources were slim. The fact that 5,000 farmers and shepherds would give up their livelihood to go and listen to this walking preacher, this rabbi, teacher, shows that they were hungry. They were after something. Jesus was giving them something they were not finding anywhere else. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Amos, which says, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And this came to pass. If you look in the Old Testament, there is a gap of centuries between the last word of God that Israel gets from the prophets and the New Testament, where Jesus' life and ministry begins. And so when they hear about him, when they hear about these miracles, when they hear about what he is saying and doing, the people who are starving go to find him. They go to look for him. Jesus never does miracles just to show off his power. They always point to who he is. He calls them signs. Signs that he has God's seal of approval. Signs that he is fulfilling all the promises that God made to Israel. And the people are recognizing these signs. They are seeing him do the things that they've heard about in the Old Testament, the stories they have heard, and they are flocking to him. Then they asked him, what must, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, as we looked at last week. The signs, the miracles, are pointing to it. His fulfillment of Scripture is pointing to it. Everything he is doing is deliberately interpreting Scripture, the Old Testament, so that the people will recognize who he is. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament is defined by a story, by a journey. Exodus. How God brings Israel out of slavery in Egypt, frees them from slavery, leads them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, gives them the law, forms them into a holy people, and then leads them for 40 years to the promised land. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of all that. The things that he is doing are revealing the content of Israel's journey. Because Exodus and Israel's history is not just history. It's not just a story to learn. It's really an outline. It is the spiritual journey that all of us need to go on. And Jesus is putting himself right in the middle of it. The Israelites were slaves. They slaved for Pharaoh, the greatest superpower at that time the world had ever known. They were in bondage, and they worked for him, not for themselves. The Bible claims that that is true of every human being. If Jesus is not our Lord, if we are not free to worship God and be his people, then we are in bondage. Maybe not to Pharaoh, but to something. To money, power, success, something in this world that we think will give our lives meaning, that will complete us, that will give us happiness and joy. And the Bible says there is nothing in this world that can do that. Everything that you try to put in God's place will enslave you. And that's what sin is. But God is a savior. And he comes to Israel, and using Moses, he frees him from bond- he frees Israel from bondage, just as Jesus comes to us. God defeats Pharaoh's power to set his people free, just as Jesus defeats death to set us free. The Israelites' journey begins by passing through the water, just as the Christian journey begins in baptism, passing through the water to a new life. At Sinai, they become a holy nation. They're given God's law. They are turned from slaves into a free, holy people. When Christians are baptized, they are baptized into the Christian church, a holy people, defined by God's word. The Israelites journeyed for 40 years as God prepared them to live in the promised land. All of us, even as Christians, even as holy people in the church, need time to be perfected. We don't go immediately to God in heaven. We need to be purified. We need to learn what it means to be a child of God. We need to be taken on a spiritual journey. But there is a promise of the promised land, which for Christians is the new heaven and the new earth. So when Jesus begins to speak to Israel, 
he has all these stories in mind. This is what he is claiming to be part of, this spiritual journey, the story of Israel's salvation. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, Always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now there's a big, there's a big argument uh, in between these two passages where everything that I just said is challenged by the crowds, the 5,000 that come out. Jesus outrages everybody there. Many stop following him. But think what he is claiming. He's linking himself to the story of Israel's salvation. He is equating the manna that God provided in the wilderness to himself. The sustenance that God provides through Christ to us as we journey towards him. In fact, it's what the Lord's table is all about. He is saying that everything that you're looking for, you can find it in me if you acknowledge me, if you recognize me, if you see that I truly am the one the story was pointing to. But then he gets really outrageous, and that's why I skipped forward to verse 53. Jesus has put himself in Israel's story. He's made the claim that the things that Israel recognizes from its past are being fulfilled in him. The signs, the miracles, are pointing to that fact. But then he says this, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What is Jesus saying? Why is what he is saying so outrageous? In fact, what he says is so outrageous that everybody leaves him except the 12 who are going to end up his disciples. The uh, John 6 ends this way. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you of the Holy One of God. Interpreting these words, believing these words, is the difference between being Christ's disciple and following him 
and not. What did he, does he say here that is so outrageous? What is he pointing to? What truth? Well, there's, you know, if you're a Gentile, if you're anybody who's not Jewish, the first outrageous thing he says is that his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink. To anybody who hears words like that, it sounds like cannibalism. It's disgusting. Blood and guts, Jesus being eaten alive. In fact, uh, the early Christians were accused of cannibalism because of this. It's too vivid, it's too gruesome. The imagery to the non-Jewish mind doesn't make sense apart from cannibalism. However, to the Jewish mind, it does make sense, but is even more outrageous. What does the Jewish mind hear when Jesus says this? Well, Israel's worship, the Hebrew worship, was based on sacrifice. The Hebrew people began as nomads. They had herds of animals. They were shepherds. They were nomads. If you read Genesis, the Hebrew nation begins with Abraham and Lot taking their flocks to this new land that God points them to. The stories of Isaac and Jacob are all about their flocks, about the, the marriages and the uh, protection and the increase of the wealth of their flocks. So to, to the Hebrew mind, animals were wealth. And if you were going to sacrifice to God, if you were going to give anything to God, one of your animals had to die. Blood had to be shed. And there were two main kinds of sacrifice. It was a peace offering. And the peace offering was how uh, Israel celebrated its relationship with God, its covenant with God. And the way it worked is you sacrificed the animal, you gave a portion to God, which was burnt, that's how God received his portion, and everybody else had a feast. And it was a celebration. It was a celebration of the peace of the community with each other and with God. And actually you just participated in an echo of that peace offering when we offered the peace to each other. The peace that we have with each other, the peace that we have with God, is because of the blood of the sacrifice. We're not enemies. We are not competitive. We can love and trust each other because God has made peace with us and between us. So that's the peace offering, sometimes called the covenant offering. But then you had a sin offering. And that was when somebody did something wrong. Somebody violated God's law. And so what you did is you took an animal and you placed your hand on it. And symbolically your guilt was transferred onto the animal. And the animal was sacrificed and completely burnt. No celebration. The whole sacrifice was given to God. So of course Israel knows this. Their temple, their priests... The whole social hierarchy was based on this structure. And what is Jesus saying? I'm the sacrifice. I'm the peace offering. 
I am the sin offering. In fact, the, uh, the peace offering and the sin offering had come together in the Jewish mind with the Passover celebration. And Jesus says that he's the Passover lamb. Everything that Israel is based on is overturned. You know, the temple of the center of Jerusalem, the holidays, the social structure, the laws of Moses, everything they've grown up with, Jesus said, I've fulfilled it. It's all about me. And of course they were outraged. He just, in that statement, overturns everything that they recognize as normal. But he goes further than that. For my flesh is real food, and my blood real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. What is he saying there? He's saying, I'm not kosher. The way the sacrificial system worked was, you sacrificed one of your animals. And how did you do that? You cut its throat, and it bled out, and as the blood left the animal, so did the life. And so the blood was associated with the life of the animal. And whenever you sacrificed an animal, the blood belonged to God, because the life belonged to him. And so you get the kosher laws, which basically said, Israelites, Jews, do not eat meat with blood in it because the blood belongs to God. The sacrifice of the animal is captured in its blood shed, and that belongs to God. And so under the kosher laws, you don't eat meat with blood in it, and you don't eat anything that can be contaminated by that blood. That's the essence of them. Sacrifice equals bloodshed. Blood is what God gets in his portion, along with anything else. So what is Jesus saying? When I'm the sacrifice, you, the people, get to drink the blood too. There is no longer a division of the flesh for the people and the blood for God, the sacrificial life. Now we partake in God's portion also. This is the gospel, by the way. It looks bloody. It looks awful. But what is Jesus saying? Remember, he's pointing to this table in front of us here. He's saying, my body and blood, the sacrifice, are now for God and man together. The division has been removed and we are invited to partake with him. Jesus is not just the word of God come down and made flesh to teach us, to save us, to show us how to live. He's also the one that leads us back to union with God, to participate in the divine life, to come together around the family table. What do you see when you see this table? 
We have bread and we have wine, body and blood, the flesh of Christ, the sacrifice, and the blood of Christ, the sacrifice. He has fulfilled everything that the Old Testament points to. And in him, God and man are reunited. This is the reason, by the way, that we have the table every week, front and center. Because this table defines the good news. It is the gospel. And every time we partake together in the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the gospel and sharing in the gospel and receiving the benefits of the gospel. You know, when I, um, when I first came to Hoboken, when uh, we were beginning our church, there already was a worship service. But like many Presbyterian churches, we only did the Lord's Supper once a month. And the first thing that I wanted us to, to switch was to doing the Lord's Supper every week. And the reason was fear. I was afraid that I wasn't a very good preacher. I was afraid that, you know, people would not hear the gospel from me clearly, that they would not be moved by the good news. But I knew, as long as we did the Lord's table every week, as long as we came to this table and ate the bread and drank the wine, that we would be receiving the gospel, that you would be receiving the gospel. Because this is it. It's the reason I believe that that time when we eat together, we are, of all times, most united. When I was at seminary, there were a lot of divisions between the different groups of seminary. But we did the Lord's Supper every week, every Tuesday. And for that moment, as we gathered around the table, as we shared the Lord's Supper together, there was peace. We could see that we were one. We were witnessing that we were one together. No more enmity, no more striving. People united, united with each other, and united with God because of Jesus. Now, in a moment, we're going to come to this table. Think of what Jesus is saying. Think of what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's the gospel. Let's pray together.
Gracious Father, we thank you that through Christ you have removed all enmity between us, all barriers, everything that stands in the way of our belief in you, our union with you. Lord, uh, free our minds of disbelief and doubts. This morning, as we come to the table, fill our minds with you. Fill our spirits with you. Fill our imaginations and everything that we are with you. Fill our church with you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.